The Lord, uh, I, I'm so grateful for the women who have chosen to make the garden their church home and who are here today, uh, maybe not regularly here, but are here visiting uh, their kids or, or are, are part of uh, this community. And I pray, Lord, that you would rest your hand on them, um, those uh, who are uh, expecting uh, children first or second or, or more, that your hand would rest on them for strength for this season. And I pray as well for those whose uh, kids are maybe grown and everybody in between. Uh, being a mom is more than just giving birth. It has to do with, with so much more of, of passing on and nurturing and, and caring for. So I pray, oh God, that you would uh, be their source and their strength, particularly those moms who are going through, uh, through some less than hallmark moments. Uh, that you would give them help in this season and, and strengthen them for this season uh, and encourage them in it. And we also want to just take advantage of the moment to, to, to pray for those uh, for whom the images and the ideas of moms are not as pleasant and not as healthy and wholesome as perhaps represented here this morning, uh, but who are still de dealing with really difficult circumstances and trauma and situations that have been uh, difficult for them uh, because of, of pained relationships with moms. I pray that you would come alongside them and help them too today. Uh, Mother's Day isn't always uh, a day of deep celebration for everybody. So we recognize that and we want to pray into that and lift that before you and pray that you would be present and strong with us in it. Guide us in our conversation this morning and pray that you would help us to hear your word to us and respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise God. Praise God. Uh, I do um, want to invite you to turn with us for the kind of the second to the last transitional sermon in our Resurrection Project series. Um, the point of the series over the last month or so has been to um, kind of focus attention on the ongoing effects, the residual effects of, of Resurrection. Uh, we celebrate as a, as a worldwide church, and of course the garden is part of that, the wonder of Jesus' raising from the dead on Easter. But if you are in churches the day after Easter, the Sunday after Easter, sometimes it's as if that was long ago and far away and the implications of it aren't uh, rippling through the world the way they maybe they ought to be or, or can be or should be. So we decided, uh, as we were planning our speaking schedules here over the next uh, few weeks, just to spend some time thinking about what it means to be part of this resurrection project. It is a big deal. The Apostle Paul says, if the resurrection, this is in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection in fact did not happen, then all of our hope is empty and, and in vain. It's meaningless. Our gathering together on a Sunday morning, uh, it, it meaningless. So, so when we think about resurrection, we need to kind of get our heads around the fact that it's not just about Jesus's raising from the dead. It is about the reorientation, the recalibration, the reconfiguring, if you will, of the universe to its rightful place. It is, it is a way of kind of starting over. Uh, in, in terms of that. So we spent time with James a couple, couple of three weeks ago, then last uh, two weeks ago with, with Peter uh, in, the, in the resurrection stories uh, in the Gospel of John. This morning, uh, I want to broaden it out and look at a passage that we've looked at before a few years ago. 
uh, in Matthew 28. So if you've got Bibles with you, we've got a couple, one more here on the shelf. We're in the middle of picking up some more, so we're happy to share that with you. The text will be on the screen. Matthew 28, um, in which Jesus kind of kind of gives us a snapshot of his um, his vision for 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 the future. What what does it mean now that 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 he has raised from from the dead, and what is the what are the implications rolling rolling forward on that? All right, does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to start there. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling frantic this morning. I need to just breathe. Anybody else? Just ah, uh, gotta calm down here. So, do you mind doing that with me? I'm just gonna take a moment and and be present to the Lord for a second or two, and just breathe a little bit and and breathe in the work of the Spirit. I think He's got something to say to us this morning, and I don't want to rush past that. Okay, so let's just uh, settle ourselves before the Lord. Lord, I don't know exactly what's going on in my own mind. Uh, so many things rushing through, even in worship. Um, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to miss what the Spirit is saying to me, to our congregation, to our community. So I want to just take some time and breathe in deeply of the Holy Spirit and let Him. Just settle us down so that we have capacity to hear. I don't know why, Lord, but my heart is just uh, burdened with folks who feel, even on this day of celebration of life that is inevitable in Mother's Day, just a real grief that has settled in. And um, that's not a bad thing. Grief isn't a bad thing. It's how we remember what is worth remembering and who is worth remembering. Um, and so a comfort, Lord, those who grieve today. Be their strong tower, I pray. Um, I also am aware that this day is a day of hope, but hope that cannot be grabbed that cannot be manipulated. And so I pray that you also would be with those who hope today. That they would not take their hopes into their own hands, but offer them up to you, allowing you to give them the desires of their heart, which sometimes we can barely even hope for. Thank you that you're able to do that. And now, Lord, as we just settle in on this text, I pray for the work of your Spirit. just need your help today, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, so, the scenario here, Jesus has raised from the dead. The rumors are already beginning to circulate that it was a trick. That, that the disciples paid off the Roman soldiers. That, that they... Um, uh, were were paid to lie, which on its surface, both in in history and in in the moment it occurred, is uh, patently falsifiable. A Roman soldier that took a bribe was executed without trial. Uh, a Roman soldier that failed in duty, i.e., falling asleep, 
was likewise ex ex executed for treason. So, so the rumor clearly is not true from the get-go. But that's the circulation. That's what's going on. And the disciples have, in the, in the face of this, left Jerusalem and gone back like we were last week up in the northern part of the country. So Jesus has arranged to meet them someplace on a mountainside that they were and he was familiar with. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 16 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, 28. Like I said, we've talked about this passage before, um, and I'm, I'm not so naive, however, as to believe that everybody remembers every sermon I've ever preached, um, or that even remembering it, you will have any idea what I was talking about then, nor even actually today. So I'm hopeful that in our repetition of this familiar passage, however, that, that maybe we can can get a, a sense of what tomorrow morning looks like in the Resurrection Project. He said, verse 16, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubt doubtful. Then Jesus came up to them and said, all authority in the heavens and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to play around a little bit with the translation of this passage. I've spent a, a, a fair chunk of time in it, and while the English translation that we read here out of the New International Version is accurate, it misses, I think, kind of the thrust of what Jesus is saying to us and, and to the disciples. So, so they had a prearranged meeting. Some think that it was the same mountain on which Jesus was transfigured as a place of, of, of connection to, to what was coming after resurrection and, and, and so on. Um, the 11 disciples, Judas, of course, uh, having uh, committed suicide, to the mountain that Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, the text says, in verse 17, they worshipped him. They are honoring him as a risen Christ and risen Lord. Uh, but it says some doubted, some were doubtful. And often if you read that, you might think, well, what were they doubtful about? They just spent 30 or 40 days or so uh, with regular appearances by the resurrected Christ. Surely, if anybody could have faith, uh, it, was, it was them. Why were they doubtful? Uh, and and the, the Greek text in behind this suggests it wasn't that they were doubtful about Jesus. It's that they were doubtful about themselves. They didn't... They didn't get yet what the implications of his resurrection meant for them. Remember, for the last two and a half, three years, three and a half years, every day, so to speak, had been kind of programmed with the crucifixion project heading towards Jerusalem, which they didn't understand, they didn't make, couldn't make sense of, but at least every day when you got out of bed, so to speak, you knew what was coming, you knew where we were going, you knew kind of what life meant. And now all of a sudden, with that Easter weekend, that Passover weekend 30 or 40 days ago, everything is back up for grabs again. So they open up their daytime, or they open up their calendar, and they discover there's nothing scheduled for today. We're not heading towards Jerusalem. Where are we going? 
And, and, and okay, we got an appointment with Jesus on the mountain in Galilee. We're there. They see Him coming up the mountain. They worship Him. But this, the, the, the doubts, the question marks still remain. He was resurrected from the dead. What does that mean for us? And are we going to be capable for whatever it means for us? Remember, these guys had all failed the crucifixion project. They, they, they didn't get it. So naturally, I'm thinking they're curious as to whether they're going to be equal to whatever it is that's coming next, especially because they don't know. Uh, and and, and what, does, what does Jesus' resurrection prepare them for? This is the kind of the question. Anybody know kind of how they're feeling? All the way through the Gospel of Matthew, they have heard the echo of Jesus' call in their ears when he says to them, follow me, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, remember it's same in the Gospel of Mark where we've been spending the last couple of years, he means, I think you have what it takes to be like me. That's what follow me means. That's what be my disciple means. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. I think you have the capacity to be like me. And they're doubtful of that. They believe in him but they don't believe in themselves. They don't believe about themselves what Jesus evidently believes about them. They don't think they have the capacity to be the kinds of people who can be like Jesus. Anybody now resonate with what they're... I, 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 I believe in you, Jesus. You're, 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 you're good. You're good to go, as it turns out. I'm not sure I am. I'm not sure... With all of, when I look in the mirror, what I see is not somebody in whom to believe, but somebody to doubt. And we all have our asterisks, don't we? We look in the mirror and we asterisk who's looking back. Yes, but, if only, maybe when. That's the doubtful. Jesus completely ignores that. He doesn't even address it. He doesn't pat him on the head and say, no, it'll be okay. You're really worth believing in. I really do believe. I think you're really good. He just says, all authority has been given to me, so you go. He's authorizing them. He's sending them. He's literally, the word is apostolizing. He is sending them with mission. Even though they don't believe in themselves, he does, and he is willing to ignore their self-doubt because he has a resurrection project that he wants them to participate in. If Jesus, by the way, doesn't ignore our self-doubt, nothing will be done. Because we will disqualify ourselves, we will bench ourselves, we will set ourselves aside because we are not willing to believe into the reality that Jesus stands in. That is, that we are competent and capable to participate with him in his mission to save the world. So he ignores us. He just says, just go, go. Anybody have a boss like that or a parent like that or a coach like that? I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Get in there, you're playing. No, no, another couple hours of practice. And I remember the first time I played the piano for a recital. 
That was the, that was the task. I mean, I practiced hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and where everything. I, uh, you, know, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Too bad. You're on. Go. That's what Jesus is doing. You're on. You'll you'll figure it out as you go along. And in fact, in two weeks, we will we will we will discover the secret to Jesus's confidence, and that is the Holy Spirit. Because they're not going in their own strength. He, they're going in the power of the Holy Spirit. If, if the confidence is built on their character, we're screwed. The confidence instead is built on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who enables Jesus' confidence to be justified and realized. Okay, So we'll get there in a couple of weeks on Pentecost Sunday. But now, Jesus says to them, all authority in the heavens, and you'll notice that I pluralize that in the Gospel of Matthew, the word heaven, is almost always plural, and it refers to the Jewish cosmology of the earth as, and, and heavens as having three stages of heaven. So the first heaven is the space around your ears, right, the air that you breathe. The second is the sun, moon, stars, atmosphere, environment. But the third heaven is the place where God resides or dwells in their, their understanding. And Jesus is using heavens, plural, to indicate that all authority at all levels of the heavens has been given to him. There is no more authority to be given to anyone. He has it all. And, he says, on earth as well. In the heavens, his authority is not disputed. On the earth... It is. So where does he send us? Into the earth to stake out positions of his authority. He deputizes us, his disciples here, to extend his authority, which he has been given. So this is the echo in Matthew 28, of Genesis chapter 1, where he tells us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and bring it under subjection as the image of God. This is the same idea. You, you with me? So, be going. And, and here's the other thing. In the translation, um, it says, uh, New, American, New International says, authority has been given, therefore go. The, the Greek verb here is something like, as you are going. So it's not go to make disciples, and it's not really go and make disciples. It's be going, and as you are going, be making disciples. In other words, you're going to be going into all the world for all kinds of reasons. Some of you are going to be going, like with crochet kits, into to Africa as a, as a micro-enterprise that is transformative in a culture. Right? Some of you are going to be going to work at Nordstrom's where they sell Crochet Kids products. Some of you are going to be standing in front of a classroom of preschoolers or, or middle schoolers or high schoolers. Lord, help you all. Some of you are going to be uh, uh, homemakers. Some of you are, are, are going to be nannying. Some of you are going to be working in the, in the uh, entertainment industry. Some of you are going to be journalists. Some of you are going to be poets. Some of you are going to... As you are going, in whatever way you are going, and wherever you are going, make friends for me, Jesus is saying. Make people fall in love with me because of you. Let them be so impressed 
with the me that they see in you. That they want to be part of the resurrection project. Do you see what he's doing? It's just sheer genius. Because he's not sending missionaries. He's deputizing all of us on mission. So it's not go and be a pastor someplace or go and be a, a, a church planter someplace. He's just saying, go as an engineer. Go as a geologist. Go as an anthropologist. And as you're going, along the way, in the pattern of relationships you form as you are going, be making disciples. Then he gives us the strategy by which to accomplish this. And unfortunately, the church historically, in my view, including churches that I have led, have gotten this backwards. We've missed, I think we've missed fundamentally misunderstood what Jesus is saying. Because he gives us the strategy by which to accomplish the mission. Anybody unclear on what the mission is? Be going and be making disciples. That's the mission. That's it. We're not, we're, we're, that's it. Not Christians, by the way. Not believers. People who have aligned their lives in a pattern of following Jesus like an apprentice would. Be making students for me. Be making friends for me. Not people who believe the right things about me. But disciples. Now, I think you can't be a disciple very long before you start to bring into alignment the things you believe about Jesus, but let's not get the cart before the horse. You don't believe first and then become a disciple. You're a disciple first and then you become a believer. How are you, how are you doing? Everybody okay? Because when I did street evangelism, my goal was to get people to believe the right things about Jesus in the hopes that they would become disciples of Jesus. The problem was the methodology of my evangelism was about getting to heaven, not about going into all the earth. Do you, do you see? So believing was my ticket out of hell and into heaven. I have a ticket. I believe the right things about Jesus. God can't think of a reason to keep me out of heaven. Do, do, do you know? And whether it's Four Spiritual Laws or Romans Road or ABCs or whatever it is, the outcome ended up producing people who believed the right things, or at least said they did, but had absolutely no intention of following Jesus across the street in terms of the patterning of their lives after Him with relative to money or sexuality or relationships or job performance or any of those kinds of things. And Jesus just frankly is not interested in people believing in Him. The devil believes in him. The demons in hell believe in him. Belief is cheap. Discipleship will cost you your life. So he said, as you're going, make disciples. We'll work the belief stuff out as we go along. Yeah? So, how do we do it? He says, here's how. Baptize them into the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, here's where we got it tweaked. We think that what Jesus was saying here was when you baptize someone, when you put them under the waters of baptism, say this. 
in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I baptize you. And, and I do that, by the way. Every time I baptize somebody, I always say that. We baptize you into, on the basis of your confession of faith, I baptize you into the names of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. I don't think Jesus was giving us something to say at baptism. I think he was giving us a strategy for making disciples. Here's what I'm thinking. The word baptize means immerse. Two kind of root ideas that come together to form how the disciples would have heard this. Uh, when a boat has got a hole in it, in ancient Greece it is spoken of as being baptized. Because you end up with the boat not floating on the water, but into the water. It, it, the, the water surrounds the boat. It has a hole in it. It's baptized. It's totally immersed. Right? The second one is to describe, and it comes out of that root, it describes what happens in the textile industry where an individual has a fabric that he or she wants to make a different color. What do you do in order to enable that to happen? You dye it, you immerse it, you baptize it in a solution that changes the very DNA, if you will, the fabric color, so that the baptism is a way of its becoming something else. Do you see? That's what he, I think he's saying. I want you to go into all the world and immerse them in a new reality in such a way that they are infected and transferred into a different way of being as a result of that immersion. What are we to immerse them in? He says, into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is, of course, a different idea than we usually have with names. But in the ancient Near East, first century Palestine particularly, name meant character. Name meant personality. Name meant way. Name meant culture. So if you immerse someone into the name of the Father, you are immersing them into the culture, into the way, into the personality, into the temperament of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to immerse them into the new universe of the Trinitarian reality that I have immersed you into. As a result of you following me around for these last three, three and a half years, you, ha you have been wrecked. You have been ruined because the DNA of your soul has been shaped by that immersion into the reality of the kingdom come. He has been doing this for the last three years. He has been immersing them in the new reality of grace and forgiveness and healing and wholeness. Do you see? So that they approach the entirety of their lives differently than they did before. They are fundamentally changed by that immersion into the reality of the Trinitarian universe. I mean, it's, it's hard for us, but let me, let me put, it, put it this way. It's only been within the last 15 or 20 years, maybe 30 years, that popularization of a spiritual reality has made the mainstream. Everybody's known it existed all the time. But as a result of modernism, 
we have, manif we, have, we have tried to control whatever belief there is in spirituality by our belief in the material. So as a result of, of, of social Darwinism in the late 1800s and on the way through the early parts of the 1900s and really well up into the, the latter part, maybe the last decade or two uh, of, of the, of the um, uh, uh, 1900s, 20th century. Modernism, materialism, naturalism has been the guiding philosophy of how things ought to be. Does that make sense? As a result of the birth uh, of postmodernism, we're finally coming back to pre-modern age. Postmodernism and paganism are very, very similar. In that we finally are coming to the realization there's more than meets the eye. There's more than I can touch and taste and feel. There's more to the nature of the universe than the material realm that I live in. That's postmodernism and paganism but it's not modernism. So we live in a culture, finally, again, where people have an understanding of and believe in the reality of the spiritual world. The problem is they believe in some wacko stuff relative to it. Can you say Oprah? And that then the whole culture of Gnosticism, if I can unpack that at another time, that that represents. Right? So Jesus is saying, I need you to go into this pagan, modern, postmodern world and teach them how it really is. How? By living yourselves how it really is. How do you immerse someone in a reality that is unseeable but knowable? How do you do that? Well, you live your life in parallel to their lives, but you live in a different world than they live in, even though you live in the same neighborhood. So, the two of you get a, a cancer diagnosis. How does the person who lives in the reality of the kingdom come live in response to that cancer diagnosis versus the one who thinks the only, only world is material? Or that there are spiritual forces at work, but they're malign. They're opposed to us. Do, do you see? I, we, we each have children. And, and one of our children each goes off the rails somehow. They go sideways somehow. How does somebody who has been immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit handle that versus someone who has not? Do you see? We get pink slips. How does somebody who has been immersed in the reality of the kingdom come negotiate that pink slip reality versus somebody who is not? That, Jesus says, is how you immerse them in the reality of the Spirit. So, 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 so we don't vote people into place to uh, 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 do development in Uganda. Four college students decide to start a business in Uganda. Why? The kingdom has come. What else is there for us to do? Or we have members of our own community here who, who uh, ha have seen a similar reality and decide to make jewelry, uh, from, from, uh, uh, have, have women make jewelry and, and market it in 31 bits. And we could talk about numerous... Op That's immersing them in the full reality of the Trinitarian universe. That's what it looks like. 
caring for the homeless, feeding the, uh, the, the, the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting and comforting the sick, and on and on and on it goes. And Jesus is convinced if we do this well, it will not be very long before they say to us in one form or another, can you please tell me, how did you learn to live this way? This doesn't make sense to me. You don't negotiate grief the same way everybody else does. You don't negotiate bad news the same way everybody else. You don't even celebrate the same way everybody else does. What is it with you? And then we can say, according to Jesus, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me teach you how to live the same way Jesus taught me how to live. Do you see? We make the case by the nature of our lives and then we earn the right to speak to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family, because there is a demonstrable difference in the way we negotiate disappointment and failure and success and triumph than people who are not immersed in the Trinitarian reality do. Isn't Jesus smart? Can we just say Jesus is really smart? His way is awkward and difficult and clumsy and sloppy and wasteful and it works all the time. And our way, because what do we do? We teach people to death. Then we want to then we want to baptize them, saying words over them as we immerse them in water before they've understood what it is they're making any kind of a commitment to. Jesus is saying, follow me around for a while. I think you're going to learn that my way of doing life is the only way to do life. I'll teach you how to do it. That's the resurrection project. So, so as, you, as you go into all the world here uh, tomorrow morning or this afternoon, you will be faced with the same challenges that everybody else is faced with. Will you respond to them having yourself been immersed in the kingdom and in so doing invite them to that reality without saying a word. Now, it's important to say words, but when? For the most part, when you've earned the right. Yeah? Jesus is convinced that if we do this, by the way, the genius of this in the first 300 years of the church's life indicated that Jesus knew what he was talking about. We, get, we started to go sideways in about 350 when we elected our first Christian emperor. And then belief became a matter of signing on the line, not discipleship. So what do we invite, invite us to? Please notice how he ends. I want you to be doing this until the day you die. I'll be with you until the very end of the age, whenever that comes. And remember, he said, I don't know when that is. So is anybody unclear on what your mission is tomorrow morning? What your mission is in your marriage. This is why marriages matter. A marriage that has been immersed in the full reality of the Trinitarian universe handles the stuff that every other marriage deals with differently. 
Do, do, do you see? And he invites us into that. So I don't know what the implications of that are for you. Uh, I'm going to ask Mickey and, and the team to come back here for a few minutes. And I just want you to sit and consider what Jesus is inviting you to in your place of employment tomorrow, in your marriage today, in, in, in the way you conduct yourself as a single man or a single woman uh, this, this week, the way you negotiate your job responsibilities tomorrow morning, the way you handle the disappointing news that you received or the great news that you received. How do you, how do you handle that in a way that will just leak out the Trinitarian universe. As you'd care to, please feel free to make your way to one of the crosses at the back or on the sides here for communion. If you want somebody to pray for you, somebody will be there to do that. We want to just take some time before we, we uh, close the service to spend some time with Jesus.